There's a picture of Ashley Koiker as a young child that was stuck to the inside of the pulpit. Just wanted to publicly announce that for everyone. It's been a prank that's been going around the office where she's been passing these out, and so I got one up here. We have some fun as a staff, a little bit. I'd like to uh, have us turn to our text for this morning, Acts 2, verses uh, 1 through 13. Acts 2, 1 through 13. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page number 883. Uh, We are beginning a new sermon series uh, this morning, and it's one that I'm quite excited about. uh, And it's one that I think fits really well with uh, what today is. It's Pentecost Sunday. So it's obviously a holiday weekend in that it's Memorial Day weekend. But for Christians, it's also a holiday weekend in that we're celebrating Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, too, that long predated what's significant about it uh, for us as Christians. But as Christians, what's significant about Pentecost is that on this day, uh, around 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit descended and, uh, as we'll talk about, invaded God's new creation. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But this is actually kicking off a 10-week series that we're going to be doing here at Ivanrest on the Holy Spirit. Now, this series actually comes from one of you. Uh, That's because uh, a while back I was talking with a member of this congregation who said, you know, the CRC, I think accurately, the CRC doesn't really talk that much about the Holy Spirit. The Reformed tradition as a whole doesn't really talk that much about the Holy Spirit. Why is that we ought to talk about the Holy Spirit more? And I thought, that's right. And me being me, I decided to not just do a, uh, one sermon on it or a series of three sermons, but 10 weeks. So be careful what you ask for when you suggest things to me uh, to preach. And so that's what we're going to be doing in this series. We're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you're interested in going deeper, one resource that I would just recommend, this is a book by pastor and author Francis Chan called Forgotten God, which I think is a pretty aptly titled book uh, for Protestants, at least, on the Holy Spirit. And um, I don't agree with everything that Chan says. Uh, He words things in ways differently than I would. He's not coming at this from a Reformed background. But he is spot on in his main message, which is that as Christian believers today, we still need to pay attention to and be aware of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And I found this book to be a nice, accessible, uh, understandable articulation of that. So with that in mind, let's begin this series here on Pentecost Sunday with the story of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. And this is what Luke, the author of this book, writes. He says, when the day of Pentecost came, they, that's the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues." Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them 
and said they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, 50 days ago on Easter, we talked about how God brought an entirely new creation into existence with the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Remember that? The old has gone, we said, the new has come, and all things, everything, all that God made in the beginning, including us as human beings, will be renewed, redeemed, and restored the way God meant it to be in the beginning. That's what God did with the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he made possible with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's what he effected on Easter so long ago. Very simply, on Easter, God began the process of bringing an entirely new creation into reality. The question is how. How will God bring that new creation into reality? How will he affect it? How will he transform this world and us from the old, broken, sinful versions that we know into this new, renewed, redeemed, restored version that he's bringing about? How will God do that? Well, the answer to that question comes today. Specifically, it came almost uh, or around 2,000 years ago on this day. And that's because 2,000 years ago on Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, God sent his Holy Spirit into this world. And that is his answer to that question. That is how God is going to bring his new creation into reality. The answer is that he's going to do it through his Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is sort of the oddball member of the Trinity, right? Uh, After all, as Christians, especially Reformed Christians, the Holy Spirit is probably the member of the Trinity that we talk about the least. I mean, we talk about God the Father, right? He's the one who made and sustains the world and everything in it. Uh, We talk about Jesus Christ the Son. He's the one who saved and redeemed us from our sins. But the Spirit, he's a little harder to understand. And as a tradition that really likes to understand things, As a result, we just sort of don't talk as much about him. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone, by the way. Uh, For instance, as some of you know, I'm I'm part of a prayer group with a couple other pastors that meets every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Every Wednesday at 9 o'clock, I drive down to Byron Center uh, to Heritage CRC, where I get together with a bunch of other pastors. uh, And we come together to talk, chat, share prayer requests, and then pray together. And while most of us are reformed, most of us serve either CRC or RCA churches, there's a few of us that aren't. And one of those non-reformed pastors in that group is a guy by the name of Randy Vrujink. Randy is the pastor of River of God Church, which is down on 68th Street in Byron Center. He's a charismatic Christian affiliated with Alliance International Ministries, and he's also one of my favorite people. Uh, He's just a very kind, gracious guy. In fact, he regularly listens to my preaching. Uh, He'll text me sometimes in the middle of the week, and he'll say, hey, listen to your sermon this past week. Great stuff. And I'm like, where do you find the time to listen to my preaching, Randy? I don't even have the time to listen to my preaching, um, but Randy does. He's, he's a great guy. And as a charismatic Christian, he's always bringing up the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll be sitting there at our prayer group talking about something, whatever it is, when all of a sudden, with some regularity, Randy will say, you know what, I, th- I feel the Holy Spirit prompting us to pray for this. 
In fact, I feel the Holy Spirit prompting us to pray for this right now. Let's pray for this. And then right there on the spot, he'll just start praying for whatever it is that we were talking about. Now, pretty much every time he does that, I make the exact same joke. After we're done praying, I say something to the effect of, see, there you go talking about the Holy Spirit again, Randy. You forget, most of the rest of us are reformed. We struggle to believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to need to form a whole study committee just to make sure that that really was the Spirit that was speaking to you just now, prompting you to pray. That joke hits every time. It never gets old. My prayer group loves me, okay? Um, But even though I'm joking, it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, the truth is we really don't talk that much about the Holy Spirit in the Reformed tradition. We don't really have much of an awareness of him. We don't have the same openness or aptitude the way that some Christians in other traditions, people like Randy, seem to have to how the Holy Spirit might be moving or working in their lives. For instance, just ask yourself, when's the last time that you've prayed the way that I just described Randy doing. Where you're there in a group of people talking about something and you feel prompted to pray and you do it. And not in the reformed quiet way to yourself, but you actually say it out loud. Hey, I think we're being prompted to pray for this. And right then, right there, you start to do that. You lead the group of people that you're with into a time of prayer for whatever it is that you're talking about. Because the answer, at least if you're like me, at least until somewhat recently, is probably almost never. This is something I'm actually trying to get better at, but as a Reformed Christian, and a pretty heady one at that, I like theology, you all know this, right? One thing I've realized is that for all it's good, and there is a lot of good in the Reformed tradition, Our theology does not really lend itself well to discussions of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to do in this series. Starting today, Pentecost Sunday, we're going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend 10 weeks talking about who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and then how we as Christian believers today, yes, even us Reformed Christians, can experience the Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives. After all, as New Testament scholar Gordon Fee puts it in his book on the Holy Spirit, Paul, the Spirit, and the people of God, which is another resource I'd recommend if you want to go deeper in this series, he says the Spirit is not simply a character and a phrase we recite in the Apostles' Creed. Instead, he is a person. He is a full member of the Trinity, and he is someone we as Christians are meant not just to believe in, but to experience in our day-to-day lives. Or as N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, the experience of God's spirit from that day, Pentecost, to this, can no more be reduced to theological formula and interesting Old Testament echoes than you can reduce a hurricane to a list of diagrams on a meteorologist's chart. It's important that that someone somewhere is tracking the hurricane and telling us what it's doing. But when it comes to Pentecost, it's far more important that you're out there in the wind, letting it sweep through your life, your heart, your imagination, your powers of speech, and transform you from a listless, lifeless believer into someone whose heart is on fire with the love of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this series, how we... As Christians today can be out there in the wind experiencing the Holy Spirit and God's transformation in our lives. And to start, 
we're gonna look at how the first Christians experienced that transformation in their own lives. On Pentecost Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit invaded God's new creation. I think that's the image we get here. This is an invasion. Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's like, boom, here's the Spirit. It's an invasion, right? And there's this total takeover of God's creation with his presence, his power, his overwhelming, irresistible, uncontrollable inhabitation of his people. Now we're gonna talk a lot more the next couple of weeks about what that means and and the implications of what this all looks like. But for our purposes this morning, I really want us to focus in on just one aspect of this, one thing that it means, one implication of what we see going on here. And that's transformation in the lives of the people who experience it. That's what we see happening in this text, right? That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. That's what happened to the disciples back then on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, and that's what happens uh, to us today too when the Holy Spirit comes. The Spirit's presence results in transformation. Transformation in our lives, transformation in our actions, transformation even down to the very core of who we are and what kind of people we will be. And that's what we see here in this text. That's actually what the Old Testament prophets promised would happen when the Holy Spirit came. For instance, in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, centuries before the Holy Spirit came on that Pentecost Sunday, the prophet Joel, speaking on behalf of God, writes this. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And that's what we see in this text, right? The Spirit is poured out, the disciples prophesy, they have dreams, visions, and wonders, and somehow, some way, they're able to do things that no one else can do or explain. Things like speaking in tongues, though people try to explain it. In other words, It's the fulfillment of Joel, chapter two. The other prophets as well. That's what Pentecost is. In fact, the apostle Peter gets up in the second half of this chapter and he tries to make sense of what's happening here and he actually quotes this passage to help explain it, to make sense of it, to explain what's going on. And what is going on here? The apostles are speaking in tongues. They're not speaking in tongues, by the way, that Pentecostals do today. That's called glossalia. It's a spirit-inspired divine speech that bubbles up in Christians during especially ecstatic worship experiences. I do believe, by the way, that that happens. Uh, it's biblical, and so even though I've never experienced it myself, I don't, I don't have the gift of tongues. I do believe uh, that others have that gift. But that's not what's going on here. 
I think Luke makes that clear. What the disciples are doing here is they're speaking in actual different languages. Luke tells us that there are people here from Parthia, Media, and Elam, Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Crete, Arabia, and all of them, he says, hear the disciples proclaiming the glory and good news and wonders of God in their own languages. Amazed and perplexed, Luke says, they asked one another, What does this mean? Well, again, it means that Joel and the other prophets have been fulfilled. It means that the Spirit has come. It means his presence, his power, and his authority has fallen. And it means that the ones that the Holy Spirit has fallen on, these disciples of Jesus, as well as the rest of creation, because there's broader implications here too, are now in the process, in real time, of being transformed totally and completely from the inside out. After all, these disciples who are experiencing the Holy Spirit here, these are average people. We don't know much about the disciples uh, before they become followers of Jesus, but what we do know is that they weren't exactly the cream of the crop, okay? Uh, before, the ones that we do know about, before they met Jesus, his disciples worked occupations like uh, fishing. They were tax collectors. Uh, At least one or two were zealots, which was a first century revolutionary movement aimed at kicking the Romans out of Palestine. In other words, most of them were simply run-of-the-mill normal people. They were also Galileans, which Luke makes special note of in our text here, right? In verses five through eight, Luke writes, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the disciples speaking in tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? What we need to understand here is that Galilee, which was way up north in Judea, was considered sort of the backwater or backwoods of Judea at the time. Uh, It wasn't a very highly respected region. In fact, the people of Galilee were sort of seen as the ancient equivalent of modern day hillbillies or rednecks. Great people, salt of the earth. Uh, Awesome to have around if you're doing a barn raising or you need a tractor tow, Uh, but that's about it. They're not the sort of people that you would expect to be at the center of one of the most significant moments of history. In fact, you can even see that in the response that Jesus himself gets as a Galilean. It's because in John chapter one, when Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, goes to call Nathanael, another eventual disciple, he tells him that they found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he says. Nazareth was a town in Galilee. And clearly unimpressed, Nathanael responds by saying, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's his response to Jesus. The implication is that of course not. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, from Galilee. The whole region, at least in the eyes of the Jewish people back then, were the podunk, backward country bumpkins of ancient Judea. Nothing important or significant comes from Galilee. No wonder people were surprised here in Acts 2 when it's a bunch of Galileans they find preaching to them. 
These were hardly the sort of people that others would have expected to suddenly become multilingual polyglots who could captivate a crowd with their speaking and presentation of the gospel. And yet, and this is the point, that's what happened. God takes a bunch of ordinary fishermen, a tax collector or two, some zealots and others from Galilee, the place where nothing good comes from, and he transforms them into compelling, convincing preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like that. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the power of the Holy Spirit back then, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit still today. It transforms us from the inside out, from ordinary people into servants whom God can use in extraordinary ways. The question for us this morning, and I do think this is a question, is are we open to that? Is that something that we're interested in? Is that something that we want? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the next question right on its heels is, are we ready for that? Because truth be told, just like these disciples back then, if we open ourselves up to that, if we ask for the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we say that we want that and we believe that we're ready for it, then the simple fact of the matter is that our lives are not going to look the same. They're not going to stay the way they are. They're not going to be comfortable and easy, simple and surface level, ho-hum and run of the mill. Instead, they're going to be changed transformed, turned upside down. That's what we see happening to these disciples here in this text, right? And if we ask for the Holy Spirit as disciples today to do that with us, to move into our lives, to fall on us, to transform us, then the fact of the matter is that that will happen to us too. N.T. Wright puts this well, I think, in his commentary when he says, it is clear from the words of Jesus that God longs to give the Holy Spirit to people and that all we have to do is ask. But then he writes this. What the Spirit will do when he comes, though, is anybody's guess. Be prepared for wind and fire, for some fairly drastic spring cleaning of the dusty and cold rooms of one's life. Or to refer to Francis Chan's book, he writes this early on. What if God asks you to go somewhere or do something that's uncomfortable. For many people, fearing that God will ask them to go in a difficult, undesirable direction outweighs the fear that God will ignore them. I've been reflecting on that a lot in my own life since reading that line. Am I more afraid of God asking me to do something I don't really want to do or simply having him ignore me? He writes, a few years ago, I asked one of my friends if he genuinely wanted to know God's will, no matter what God desired to do through him, and his answer was honest. No, that would freak me out. He then admitted that he would rather not know everything God wants him to do. That way, in the end, he could say, I had no idea you wanted me to do all those things. Chan writes, I appreciate my friend's willingness to say what many secretly think and feel about total surrender to God. It's honest, more honest than most people are willing to be. 
Chan goes on, I'm gonna quote him at length here because I think that this is good stuff. He says, when it comes down to it, many of us do not really want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Or more fundamentally, many of us don't wanna be led by anyone other than ourselves. That's another line I've been reflecting on a lot in the time since reading it. That resonates with me in our culture today. We don't wanna be led by anyone other than ourselves. The whole idea of giving up control or the delusion of it, because if what we believe as Christians is true, we don't really have control over our lives anyway, is terrifying. Do you thrive on controlling the big and small in your life? Does the thought of letting go and listening to the Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's guidance scare you and only make you cling tighter to what you think you have? The truth is that the Spirit of the living God is guaranteed to ask you to go somewhere or to do something you wouldn't normally want or choose to do. And that doesn't mean moving across the world to become a missionary. Sometimes it just means having a conversation with somebody you don't really like talking to or praying for them. The Spirit will lead you to the way of the cross as he led Jesus to the cross, and that is definitely not a safe or pretty or comfortable place to be. The Holy Spirit will mold you into the person you were made to be. This often incredibly painful process strips you of selfishness, pride, and fear. So if you say you want the Holy Spirit, you must first honestly ask yourself if you want to do his will. Because if you do not genuinely want to know and do his will, why should you ask for his presence at all? But if you decide you do want to know his will, there will be moments when you have to let go of the fear of what that might mean. When you will have to release your grip of control on your life and decide to be led, come what may. A little later, reflecting on what that might mean, Chan writes, what if you could hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and he asked you to literally give everything you owned? What if he asked you to sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor? Could you do it? Before you start explaining why he would never ask that of you, take a moment and answer the question honestly, because it is not out of God's character to ask for everything. He writes, I don't know about you, but that challenges me like crazy. I say I want to give it all to God to truly submit myself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, but I won't lie. Sometimes the reality of what that means leaves me wanting to hold back a little. There are things on this earth that I really enjoy, like surfing, golfing, eating out, and laughing with friends. And I know what you're thinking, that those things are not sinful, and you are right. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit will not lead me to forgo those things occasionally, or maybe even permanently for his purposes and the glory of the Father. I struggle to always and actually keep in step with the Spirit moment by moment. To submit and give up everything truly is radical and terrifying. However, when I think deeply about it, walking in my own wisdom, contrary to the Spirit's leading, is even more frightful. Though I struggle, I know that ultimately I want nothing more than to live in total surrender and abandonment to the Spirit every moment I have left on earth. Again, the question, I think, for us this morning and throughout this series and in our lives as Christian believers is, do we want that? Do you? Do I? Do we want that kind of transformation? Do we want that kind of life? Do we truly want to be led by the Holy Spirit like that? Or do we just want to play it safe, keep it cool, and keep having bits and pieces of the Spirit now and then, but not the whole? 
At the end of his commentary, N.T. Wright challenges us as the North American church and the church as a whole. He says, some Christians have been so concerned to keep up safe appearances and to make sure they are looking like ordinary normal people that they would never under any circumstances have been accused of being drunk at nine o'clock in the morning or any other time. Part of the challenge of this passage is the question, have our churches today got enough energy, enough spirit-driven new life to make onlookers pass any comment at all? Has anything happened which might make people think we were drunk? If not, is it, is it because the spirit is simply at work in other ways or because we have so successfully quenched the spirit that there is actually nothing happening at all? What do we want? That's the question this text and the Holy Spirit poses to us. Do we want the nice, safe, easy life that looks like the rest of the world and fits right in? Or do we want the daring, dangerous, transformed life that's led by the Spirit? Because that is what God offers us. And here's the grace in that, okay? Let's get to the gospel. God makes that possible. He actually calls the Holy Spirit a gift. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you, it's a gift, another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. This is what God always does, right? He calls us to a sacrificial life of service and discipleship in our relationship with him and in his kingdom. But he doesn't leave us to that work on our own, right? He gives us gift after gift after gift in his grace. In the beginning when he created us, he gave us life. He didn't have to, it was a gift. After our fall into sin and our rebellion against him, He didn't turn his back on us. He stayed in relationship with us. It's a gift. He gave us his law so that we could live as his people again. It's a gift. When we couldn't keep that law, he gave us a savior, his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive us for our sins. It's a gift. And then after Christ ascended, he gave us his very presence, his Holy Spirit living in our hearts to transform us from the inside out. It's a gift. The question is, do we want that? Do we want his spirit? And do we want everything else that comes along with him? That's what we're going to talk about and reflect on these next 10 weeks. We're gonna talk about the spirit of God, the transformation that comes along with him, and along the way, I hope that you, like me, as I've prepared for this series, find yourself wanting more and more of him in your life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your insurpassable grace. You have given us gift after gift after gift as your people. You made us in the beginning. You created us in your image. You made us for relationship with you. That's a gift. In spite of our sin, you continue to live in relationship with us. That's a gift. You have given us your son, Jesus Christ, as our savior to restore us to relationship with you. That's a gift. And you give us your spirit. Lead and guide us by your spirit, Lord. 
to be the transformed people that you have called us to be. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.